0: Burbank. I'm serving as one of the elders here at Charlotte Chapel Uh, and if you're a visitor with us this morning we want to extend a special welcome to you Um, and as Ben explained we're going through a series right now looking at some important questions that many people ask about the Bible about the Christian faith and uh, as you may know about now uh, the the women's football team for England and Spain are taking the field in the women's World Cup final so what an appropriate day to ask the question of this sermon. What does the Bible say about women? You know, one of my favorite stories related to this topic is the story of a woman named Ramabai. Ramabai Dongre was born in India in 1858. And she was raised in a a very conservative Hindu family. Uh, She received actually a high level of education for the time for a girl. Her father taught her Sanskrit and she ended up becoming a, a highly accomplished Sanskrit scholar. But when she grew up and she became a young woman, she really became dissatisfied with her Hindu tradition. She began to um, be really dissatisfied with how her Hindu community was treating women, particularly. And this set her on a course of searching for truth about God. And by the 1880s, Ramabai became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, she uh, found the freedom to be able to start an orphanage for young girls to be able to get them out of child marriages, and to get them an education, to be able to help them find employment when they grew up. It was such a remarkable organization that it still exists today uh, in India, and uh, the nation, the modern nation of India commemorated Ramabai in 1989 with this uh, stamp that you can see on the slide. And when Ramabai was writing her autobiography later, she explained what, what it was about Christ, about the Christian scriptures, That drew her to the faith. And this is what she said. I realized after reading the fourth chapter of St. John's gospel. That Christ was truly the divine savior he claimed to be. And no one but he could transform and uplift the downtrodden women of India. Thus my heart was drawn to the religion of Christ. So what was it about the fourth chapter of John's gospel that drew Ramabai and made her realize that Christ really is the savior and that he actually can do something for women in this world. Well, that's the very passage we're gonna be looking at this morning. And so I invite you to turn back there in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we can bring you one. Just raise your hand and a steward will be happy to to hand you one or pull it up on your phone. And as you do that and I begin, I I wanna also acknowledge though that there are many examples in history of Christians mistreating women. You don't have to go far, you could go to the Royal Mile, onto the Castle Hill, and see a memorial where many women in the 16th century were burned at the stake because they were accused of being witches. And this was done at the hands of people who claimed to be Christians. And I'm sure you could tell me other examples in history, but what I hope that we will see by the end of our time this morning is that these negative examples are actually not the norm for Christians worldwide. And more importantly, It certainly does not correspond with how we see the Bible present women. So in this text before us today, in John 4, I want to show you how Jesus Christ shows value, gives value to women in two ways. Number one, Jesus offers women abundant life. And number two, Jesus sends out women on his mission. So number one, Jesus offers women abundant life. If you look in the the beginning of the chapter here in verses 1 to 6, we see this story begin, right? Where Jesus and his disciples are returning from Judea in the south to head back to their normal home to Galilee in the north. But on their way, they have to pass through this area in between called Samaria. And as we're about to find out from the author himself, the Jewish people at this time were not on friendly terms with the Samaritans. The Jews considered Samaritans to be a a racially unclean people because they were perceived as having this mixed heritage. If you go back in your Old Testament, in ancient times, the people of Samaria actually belonged to the Jewish people. They were part of the kingdom of Israel in its golden age. But when foreign nations invaded Samaria, the local people intermarried with non-Jews and became a, a sort of hybrid people, it was thought. They had their own distinct kind of culture and religious tradition by this point. The Samaritans had even built their own temple on a mountain in Samaria to worship the Hebrew God. But the Jews to the south in Judea attacked the mountain and destroyed the Samaritan temple because the Jews believed that proper worship must be done only in Jerusalem in the temple. This was only in the second century BC when this event happened, just a little over a hundred years before Jesus' time. So it was still very fresh in people's minds when this this conversation is about to happen. So it was about noon, it says, in verse 6, we see Jesus become tired on the journey, and he sits down in Samaria by a well, by Jacob's well. Jacob was an important father of the Jewish people, and you can read about him and his son Joseph in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. So at noon, about the hottest time of the day, no one's around, and Jesus is sitting there, by the well, resting. And then look at verse seven. It says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's she's surprised by what Jesus is doing here, and what he's doing is controversial. We can see three reasons why that is, actually. Firstly, as I already said, this is a Jew addressing a Samaritan. And not only that, but asking a Samaritan for a drink from the Samaritan's jar. The, you know, a Samaritan's jar of water would have been considered unclean. Secondly, this is a man addressing a woman in public. At this time, pious Jewish men would not speak with a woman in public who was not their mother or their sister, or their wife. Jewish rabbis would not teach a woman God's law. In fact, there is a well-known rabbinical prayer of this time that says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, not all of these things were uh, born out of an ill will towards women, but we can see how it must have fostered an environment where women were looked down on in many places. But thirdly, we also see that it's not just a Samaritan, not just a Samaritan woman, but actually a woman of disrepute. The Samaritan woman was an outcast, even amongst her own people. This is why it says she arrived at the well at noon. You see, women normally would draw water from the well in the cool times of the day, in the morning or in the evening, and they would always travel in groups. But this woman showed up in the hottest time of the day and alone. She wanted to avoid others. She wanted to avoid the shame that she had acquired because of her lifestyle. And we'll see what that is in a moment. But the woman is surprised by Jesus' words to her. And then look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, Jesus begins to speak to the woman about who he is, about eternal things. And notice how he, he speaks about it in such a natural way, doesn't, it? doesn't he? He's, he's speaking using uh, just mundane things, something right in front of them, drawing water, something that the woman needs. Jesus is saying to her, I'm here to offer you something that you need. Something that is even better than this immediate need for water. Because it's not just water, it's living water that I'm offering. And then verses 11 and 12, you know, the woman is still kind of confused. Surely Jesus doesn't think he can retrieve water out of this deep well without a jar. You know, she's polite with him, but, but she sort of challenges Jesus... Kind of like, you know, who do you think you are? I mean, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? I mean, do you have something better to offer us than what Jacob gave us? Then look at verse 13. Jesus explains that this water she's trying to draw up is just normal. If you drink it, you'll get thirsty again. It, It doesn't last. But whoever drinks the water that Jesus gives will never thirst. It is fully satisfying and sufficient. It will be an abundance of water that lasts forever. As verse 14 says, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman is, is now she's really interested in this. And she, she asks for the water. Please, please get me this water you're talking about so I don't have to keep coming here. She recognizes Jesus is meeting an immediate felt need of hers. But she still doesn't quite understand what Jesus is offering. Now we get some clarity on what Jesus is saying uh, here in a few chapters later, actually, in the same book, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7. There Jesus stood up and he said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. this, he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that he's offering her living water that will well up from within her, he's talking about giving the Holy Spirit of God to live within her. Jesus is offering her a personal relationship with God, This is how she can have joy and satisfaction. It's not just a promise of some sentiment or a good feeling. It's a personal promise. It's a promise that the Holy Spirit of God, the power and presence of God, will be with you in this life and the life to come. Verse 14, again, he says, it will well up to eternal life. Eternal life that she can know. Not just in a heavenly sense, but even today. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. That, you know, that doesn't mean that God will give you an Aston Martin or the house of your dreams. It means he will satisfy you in the midst of the difficulties of life. He will quench your thirst in the desert of this world. Don't look for abundant life in the products that the world gives. That's the same you know, kind of confusion that this woman was in. Look to Jesus Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But before we can call on Jesus, we have to reckon with our need for him. And that's what Jesus does next here in this conversation. Look at verse 15. When the woman asks for the living water, Jesus doesn't give it. Instead, he leads her to recognize her need. He addresses her sinful past and her current problematic situation. She's been in multiple marriages and presumably multiple divorces. On top of that, the man she now lives with is not her husband. She's living with a guy out of wedlock. She was living in a way that was contrary to God's law. Now, we don't get details on her situation, but we can't simply treat her as a victim of her circumstances, and that's not how Jesus treats her here. Her past is undoubtedly a a mixture of her own sins and the effects of being sinned against. But Jesus is not trying to rub this in her nose. He's showing her that she has a deeper need than just daily water. She has a bigger problem than just thirst. She doesn't just need hydration. She needs forgiveness and reconciliation. Once Jesus speaks to her about her problems and prophetically kind of speaks into her life about these relationships she's had, the woman then understands that uh, this is someone special, uh, that he can see into her messed up life. And She doesn't want to go there. She, she doesn't want to have someone running reminding her of, her problem. So she begins to talk about theological subjects. Look at verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, she says to Jesus. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's asking him about you know, true worship. She's saying to Jesus, maybe I have problems, but what, what does true piety look like anyway? Jews and Samaritans disagree. I mean, so who actually knows the answer? Jesus responds to her then that salvation does indeed come from the Jews, but that there is a time soon to come when you won't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. Verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and his people must worship him in spirit and truth. That is the kind of worshipers God desires. Again, the Samaritan woman doesn't just need hydration She needs forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus is saying, I know about your past. I know how you've been living. I know the brokenness in your life. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to restore you with living water. What you need most is to go to God with a humble honesty from the heart. That's what God desires. Not people who will climb a mountain. Not those who need to be in Jerusalem to make an offering. God delights in those who humble themselves, bring him their sins, their shame, their pain, and seek his forgiveness, his peace, and his transformation. Only he can provide. You see, the Samaritan woman needs to be reconciled To God. And only Jesus can give her that. This is the the climax of the conversation. And this is where the conversation ends, actually. Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Literally, the Greek text says the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, I am. I am He. I am the Messiah. You know, He said back in verse 23 a time is coming because Jesus will be crucified on a Roman cross. The curtain that was in the temple in Jerusalem that separated people from the holy presence of God will be split in two giving access to God through Jesus. And Jesus will rise from the dead. He will give the Holy Spirit of God to all who believe. You won't need to climb a holy mountain. You won't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem because God will dwell amongst his people, the church. Not the building, the people. This is the good news, friends. And it says something to us about women, does it not? You know, God created both men and women in his own image, the Bible says. They both have equal value and dignity in the sight of God. But this is also true. Both men and women are guilty before God of breaking God's law. Scripture says we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us have turned to our own way. And we feel the effects of sin in our world today, don't we? Countless examples of abuse, sexual exploitation, and abandonment. Ultimately, the Bible says humanity is enslaved to the sinful desires of our hearts. But what Jesus Christ offers is freedom from sin. For those who trust in Christ, although we will not be free from the presence of sin and its influence in our life, Christ has freed us from the power of sin. God will, God calls on Christians to count themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So we seek to honor God in how we treat our body and the bodies of others. You know, this is why for Christians, there is a single standard of morality for men and women. I mean, think about this in the the context of the ancient world. In the first century, the New Testament's single standard of morality for men and women was revolutionary. I mean, husbands were commanded to be committed to one woman for life, to love their wife and care for her. In New Testament times, you know, it was common for Roman men to have mistresses and to frequently attend brothels where women were not employed as sex workers, they were enslaved. From a young age, they could get pregnant without any support. They would be trapped with no hope for a better future. So the Bible's call to marital fidelity, it actually served to protect women, as did the prohibition of arbitrary divorce. See, the Christian gospel offers true freedom for women because in it, women find, can find a right relationship with God overflowing into an abundant life of worship. So what will you say to Jesus? Will you try to hide your past from him? Or will you in humility come before God with your brokenness and seek the transformation he offers through faith in Jesus? If you're already a follower of Jesus, will you continue to trust Jesus that you can come to him and confess your sin to him? Will you renew your dependence on him in times of temptation and suffering? Will you delight in his salvation over and above worldly delights? So the first thing we've seen here about how Jesus treats women is that Jesus values women by offering them abundant life, and secondly, for those women who come to believe in Jesus, Jesus sends them on his mission in the world. That's the second thing we see here. Verse, from verse uh, 26, 27 and following, you know, we see the, the woman actually believes. Jesus says he's the Messiah. And we know she believes because, in, you see, in verse 28, it says that she leaves her water jar behind and went back to the town. To testify about Jesus. To the town where she wanted to avoid people, right? I mean, she came out here by herself, but now she's going back announcing. <laughs> she runs away from her water jar. She used to care so much about that. But now it's, it takes a back seat. Something more important. She's also assured of God's mercy. Do you see that? What does she say? She says, come, see a man who told me everything I did. And yet still he sought me out and offered me life with God. At first she didn't want Jesus to perceive the life she had, but after believing in him as the savior, she knew the grace of God, the love of God, had changed her and now she wanted to live for him. We know her life must have looked different after this. She wanted to live for Jesus. And then skip down to verse 39. We see that many Samaritans came out of the town And they believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. The Samaritans welcomed Jesus. He stayed with them, and they recognized that Jesus truly is the Savior of not just the Jews, but of the whole world. You know, this woman of Samaria was the first disciple that we see in John's gospel who went out and told people that Jesus is the Messiah. We could say Jesus really sent her. You know, we don't, we don't see an explicit word from Jesus sending her out here. She seems to just kind of go out of a joyful reaction to believing in Jesus. But she is the first one to do this in God's, John's gospel and Jesus wanted her to do this. This is what that kind of intermission part where the disciples come back in verses 31 to 38 and Jesus has this conversation while the woman's running off to be obedient and proclaim Jesus's name. He's explaining to them, hey, the fields are ripe for harvest. They are reaping a harvest of people coming to believe in Jesus and finding peace with God. And Jesus wants this to multiply. Later, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out into the world, saying to them, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the of the earth. That's what the Samaritan woman is doing, multiplying believers in Jesus. And in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus shows the same value to other women who advance the gospel. Women like Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, who both financially supported Jesus and his disciples. We see Priscilla, a missionary co-worker alongside the apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Phoebe, a deacon who's mentioned in the letter to the Romans, and many more whom we could mention. Before Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, he sent a woman who was also a Samaritan woman, who was also formerly an outcast woman, but who now had come to know the grace of God in Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ not only offers women grace and peace with God, he gives them a wonderful purpose for their lives. He commissions women to be his ambassadors in the world, even women who have known real pain, abuse, exclusion, even women who have messed up their lives through poor life decisions and destructive addictions. Through faith in Jesus, God changes women into his beloved daughters. Even amidst the difficulties of life, believing women can help others come to know Jesus. Even though some in the world continue to devalue women or view them with evil intentions, God will turn these evil intentions on their head. Look at this passage with me from the letter of 1 Corinthians. The the writer Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth and he says this to them. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the things despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. You see, God delights to send out women who boast only in him for his glory. This is why we read Psalm 102 earlier in the service. It's a beautiful picture of a person who is going through suffering and opposition, but continues to trust in God's sovereign plan and continues to proclaim his name among the nations. And even after biblical times, you know, over the centuries, women continued to be an important part of Christ's mission in the world. As the gospel have gone out, uh, the lives of women around the world have been transformed through their faith in Christ. Believing in Jesus has given countless women spiritual and physical hope and nourishment in the face of numerous challenges in history. I've already uh, mentioned um, how in the ancient world we see many benefits for the women uh, in those times and even in the centuries after the New Testament. Christians were in the early church at the forefront of eliminating sex slavery and the hopeless life of prostitution for girls and young women. In recent centuries, we can see how Christian ethics have promoted the value and dignity of women around the world. I already mentioned the story of Ramabai. Someone who's maybe a little bit closer to home is the example of Margaret Wilson. Margaret was from Greenock on the west coast of Scotland, but in 1829, she and her husband left from New Haven Harbor here in Edinburgh, and she literally gave her life to share the gospel of Jesus with women in India and, in the process, started the very first boarding schools for girls in the country, a trend that continued to the present day. Today, there are Christian charities such as Tear Fund and the Dignity Freedom Network, which provide support for girls and young women in similar situations of hardship and poverty. You see, Christians are willing to devote a lifetime to ministry in these difficult places, Because Christians have an eternal perspective on the worth and dignity of women. Christians believe each human being is made in the image of God, bearing his likeness as his special creation. Women have just as much value as men and women as men in the eyes of God. And what is more, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, demonstrated the eternal worth of women by offering them eternal, abundant life and sending them on his mission in the world. I wanna invite the musicians back up as we we close here. And and, uh, as I do, I wanted to share with you a a resource that was helpful for me in this process. It's on the bookstall out in the foyer. It's called How Christianity Transformed the World by Sharon James. She has a chapter in here on women, among many other topics that she covers. So I uh, recommend that to you for further reading. Um, we also have a course coming up here at Charlotte Chapel called Christianity Explored that we'll be running. So if you, ha- you want to find out more about that, send an email to info at charlottechapel.org. And if you have any questions or would like to talk more about Jesus, about what we've been looking at this morning, about joining this church, about baptism, then please come and see me after the service. But friends, let me say a word of prayer as we close. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for um, how, Lord, in spite of our fallenness before you, in spite of our rebellious um, past and present, God, you decided to show grace and mercy towards us. Even this outcast woman of Samaria, Lord, even though she is very unique in many ways, we can relate with her in so many other ways, Lord, and we're reminded of, God, your own love and grace that you've shown, or even for people like us. And so, God, we pray for, um, God, all of us listening this morning, that we would respond to Jesus as this truly the savior of the world, and that, Lord, you would use us for your purposes in this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for our final song.